Dave, the bionic blogger. And this is Amp, the podcast for people with limb loss. Happy 2018, Dave. You know, there were times when I didn't know if we'd make it here, Peggy. <laughs> it was a long 2017. It, it, was, it was a long 2017. It was, in some ways, an exhilarating one with, with everything that happened with Amped. Uh, politically, it was absolutely exhausting. Um, so here's to a, a better and a more restful and less stressful 2018. Yeah, 2017 was not a banner year for our republic. Yes. Do you have any overall. resolutions this year? Um, no. No. <laughs> I, I I do not. I have no resolutions. Okay. Okay. That's a little I disappointing. Have okay. Be nice to people. That's my resolution. There, well, Be nice. How's that? But you already are. So can you really resolve to change something that you've already doing? It, it's increasingly hard. <laughs> So, you know, um, I don't know. I think it's legitimate. Okay. Uh, How about you? Yes, I do. So my resolution this year is 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 going to sound kind of quirky. Um, so there is a Korean bath spa near me, and I have been eyeballing this Groupon for about four or five years. Oh, that's all? And Four or five years. I really want to go and check it out because it has rave reviews. But the only thing that's kept me from hitting the buy button is that they, they have these pools that have different jets and massaging things. It's supposed to be really awesome. But you have to go into the pool completely naked. And that's a huge issue for me. So my my goal this year is to develop the confidence to be able to march my naked butt into that pool. That is a very specific resolution. It is. It is. I wish you well. Thank you. I, it will be chronicled in my blog. Don't worry. I'm not even close to, to getting there yet. Um well, you you've know. only had five years. To I know. Look up the guts I so know. And it, it may be that my husband has to drive me there because I may need to drink a bottle of wine before I do it, which certainly won't help, you know, the aesthetics of what I'm going to look like. Um, but I, I am going to do it this year. I'm going to go to the Korean bathhouse naked. So That's a good idea. Get all liquored up and drown. Exactly. No, no, no. I won't be humiliating at all to die that way. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be perfect. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm going to be sitting here speaking to speaking to the void and telling people that um, you just had a horrible accident. Right. There I won't go. be. In, I, I cannot in good conscience describe that that <laughs> mode of death to our listeners. Yes. Well, on that visual, should we dive into the first podcast for 2018? I think there's nowhere to go but up from where we've started. <laughs> so let's hit it. All right. So we're going to start um, by going over our December poll question which for those of you who don't remember, because December feels like a very long time ago, um, it was, would you opt for an osseointegrated prosthesis if all the costs were covered by insurance? And the options were yes, no, and I don't know what osseointegration is. Yep, and what were we, we? We refused to talk about this in any detail before um, we obviously released the poll because we didn't want to bias the results. But you and I have talked about this one a lot. So before we go into the results, let's talk about 
let's sort of review our discussions on this historically, because this is one that we've come back to multiple times, I would say, over the last four to five years. I would agree. I would agree. So why don't you start? So I have always been strongly in the no, I would not offer osteointegration, even if it was fully covered by my insurance camp. Um, Now, there are a few caveats here. One is that I'm able to function very well with a with a normal socket, um, something that isn't integrated into my body. So the, the need that I think drives many people to explore osteo integration simply doesn't exist for me because I can function comfortably with what I already have. But for me, the fault line here has always been just the idea of something that is sticking out the end of my leg. Mm-hmm. And that has always just been a bridge too far for me. And I'm not saying that if, um, my medical condition were such that I, my choice was either to walk with that or never walk again. I wouldn't say then in that scenario that I would necessarily rule it out, but man, oh man, it would take me a lot psychologically, a lot to be able to get over that. I just, I find that creepy. So as a, so I'm a BK, um, and I, I'm kind of in Camp Dave on this right now, is that I'm getting around fine. The idea of having to go through another surgery with a lengthy recovery is just not something that I'm interested in. It's not on my radar. I also have huge concerns about what happens if the componentry detaches and you fall on the pylon and it goes into your leg and shatters it. And it's just, there's too many really bad things that could happen. I have a lot of worries about infection and things like that. And I'm getting around fine. So I, you know, and I feel the same way about leg transplantation, right? People have asked me about that. Would you have a transplanted leg? No, I wouldn't. I, I'm not going to, you know, introduce another surgery into my body that I really don't really need in order to get around. Yeah, it's, there's a, when you get outside of the the amputee specific issues related to this kind of surgery, I have a broader philosophical issue that relates to healthcare more generally um, that in large part guides how I think about healthcare personally. And that is, I don't ever, unless I'm really at risk of death, I don't ever want doctors to be doing a really cool new surgery on me. Right. Um, I don't want to be, I don't want to be the guinea pig in that way. And the, again, assuming that you could walk using a normal external socket, or you could choose to go the osseo integration route. I think there are a number, particularly of long-term longitudinal type questions that really haven't been answered. I have very little confidence that, um, that, People truly understand what the implications are of osteointegration if you're 35 to 45 years old and you're going to wear this for the next 20 to 30 years of your life, hopefully. I right. And um, I remember in the early days of osteointegration, I was a little closer to this um, through a medical advisory committee um, that was connected to a board I was on. And I remember a, a very, very well-known doctor uh, in orthopedic surgery, specifically around amputation, talking about how in Europe, where this was happening at the time, uh, the major problem they were having were lots of failures. And the, the, 
the word failure is never good anywhere, but in surgery, it's really bad. And what was happening was um, BKs were breaking their um, breaking their bones at the attachment point. AKs were breaking their femurs. And so you had BKs becoming AKs. You had AKs becoming really high AKs or even hip dissertics. That is scary, scary stuff. And I, I have a real hard time saying, yeah, let, let's go in and do something when I don't really think the long-term implications of what happens when you're in these systems is yet known. And right. I, I know the doctors who do this are incredibly skilled. I know that um, they believe in what they're doing and they believe they're providing people a better life. But again, I just, I'll, I'll let doctors do whatever they want if I'm on the border of death. But short of that, I want them to be as far away from me in general as possible. I mean, that being said, I, Dave, we, we both have friends who have undergone OSU integration and um, so far they, they've had success with it. And these were people who were struggling to, with basic ambulation and are now able to walk. So if I was in that situation, I don't know how I would feel, but I'm not in that situation. I'm very thankful I'm not in that situation. So for me, it's not something I would pursue. And the results of our poll kind of reflects how you and I think about this. Um, I'm not really surprised that 61% of the individuals who responded to our poll said no, they would not pursue osteointegration. Uh, 15% said yes. What did surprise me was that 24% clicked the I don't know what it is button. Um, which you know leads me to 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 know that we have some education to do, and perhaps that's a topic for another podcast where we can go over it and really explain to people what we're talking about. Yeah, we've this is one that you and I sort of have in the queue, and we've got some interesting ideas about how to approach it. So we will come back to osseo integration in a future podcast. But um, I actually wasn't surprised that the don't know was higher than the. Uh, yes, I would like to do osteointegration if insurance covered it. And the reason for that, in my view, is I would guess, Peggy, I have no way of knowing this, but I would guess that more people who are part of the Amped Army than not tend to be uh, amputees who've been around longer and they've been successfully using or have extensive experience using, uh, let's call it a standard or a traditional uh endoskeletal prosthesis as opposed to an osseointegrated one. And so I, I think that we probably, our poll results probably skew a little bit um, because of those demographics. My gut tells me that most people who've been amputees a reasonably long time and have used an endoskeletal prosthesis are not going to jump into the osseointegration pool so quickly. Right. I would agree with that. So just to recap, 61% said no. 15% said yes, and 24% said, basically, please tell me more. Yep. So thank you, everyone, for responding. We have our new January Amped Army poll question up on the website. Um, All right, Dave, give us an amp drum roll. Uh, yeah, hang on. Takes me a minute. I know. Uh, it's this one, right? There you go. Yeah. So before we even unveil the question. Let me just say, this question is actually prompted in my own mind by the fact that um, 
Mona Patel, who is a, a friend of both of ours, who was nominated for an uh, CNN Hero of the Year 2017, who unfortunately didn't win, but was one of the very small group of finalists, um, runs a support group. She, she was she she is a Hero of the Year. She was not the Hero of the Year. Yeah, I don't. It's it's a semantic distinction, but she still was honored and. Um, she just didn't get the money. I'm sorry, Mona. You are a hero. You're just not the hero. Absolutely. Right. <laughs> According to CNN. But in yes. any event, you did a phenomenal job. But I was thinking about, and we were both talking about support groups a lot recently. And so that kind of triggered this month's poll question, which I will let you read, Peggy. The question is, what role do amputee support groups play in your life? The options are, I go regularly meaning I attend most of my scheduled meetings of my support group. B, I go sporadically. I attend a few scheduled meetings of my support group. And C, I rarely or I never go. Yep. And I'd love to, I, I would have loved to have figured out a way, Peggy, to do this question in a much more nuanced, comprehensive way. Because I think there are a lot of ways to dice up why people do what they do and when they choose to do it in their lives. But um, we're going to, at least for the purposes of this poll, we're going to start very general and we can always come back and explore the, uh, the details of this in, in future polls. And in, in future podcasts, but I think it's good. It'll be interesting to find out um, how many of our listeners go to support groups regularly, how many don't go at all. Um, there's a huge variation. So I'm really, really curious to see where everybody's going to land on this one. As am I. So please go to our webpage, www.ampedpod.com. And if you uh, simply slide down to the community section on the homepage, which is the big yellow banner, you can see the poll question directly underneath that. And it takes you about five seconds to click on the option you want to select and then hit vote. And we will reveal the results with the first podcast of next month. Sounds good. So we do have some information to recap about healthcare reform as well in this in this week's podcast. Yeah, it's we're calling it healthcare reform. It's actually two sort of general, generally big topics that have been kicking around and that um, really sort of came to a head at year's end when we were on hiatus. So the first one relates to exchange enrollment, Peggy. And as you remember, uh, we we did a podcast where we explained to people how you enroll on the exchanges. We encouraged people to spread the word, share that resource with individuals who might be confused about how to do it. Uh, it was really an A to Z approach to what you need in order to get health insurance on an exchange. Um, one of the big challenges uh, this year was that the enrollment period was much narrower than it has been in past years, uh, much shorter time frame, And there was a lot of speculation that the enrollment numbers would be radically reduced. Um, and the budget was decreased, pretty much eradicated, correct, for publicizing open enrollment and for offering people assistance. Yeah, there were, there were huge cuts to both advertising, uh, government advertising uh, about the exchanges. And there were also uh, massive cuts to programs. I think they're called navigators uh, that actually work directly with uh, people who want to get on these insurance exchanges and help them sign up. There were massive cuts to many of, of those entities' budgets, so they, they couldn't do as much. Um, in addition to that, there was incredible confusion, Peggy, just as a result of all of the repeal and replace debate about whether or not the exchanges even still existed. Um, 
by the end of the year, there were lots of people who were just incredibly confused about are the exchanges even really there uh, because there had been so much talk about repealing them and how they were failing. And that makes the data pretty surprising, actually. Um, based upon the most current information, about 8.7 million people enrolled in the much more limited time period available to them. And that's 95% of the enrollment numbers for uh, calendar year 2017. So really, if if the program had extended an additional few weeks, it's highly likely that enrollment would have been higher. But 95% of last year's numbers really reflect a, a strong, strong consumer uh, support of the exchanges, which is a, a surprising data point, I think, for a lot of people. Absolutely. And people are surprised by this number because the the enrollment period was shorter because of the cuts to advertising and the confusion. So, you know, it's everybody in the AMPT Army that really worked on spreading the word. And I know that, that some people have reached out to us to let us know that, that they shared the podcast and our information with other people who were confused so that that would help them navigate. It was everybody helping everybody else that really helped those numbers rise. And we want to thank everybody yeah, for that. I mean, everyone who stepped in and, and did make that information available, if you did it for one person in the Limb Loss, Limb Difference community, and they got insurance as a result of that, um, the alternate, considering the what the alternative is for those individuals, you've done them an enormous favor. So thank you for for helping us get the information out there and helping helping people in our community get access to the medically necessary and appropriate prosthetic devices, other assistive devices, and just general health care that they need. Because if they had failed to sign up on the exchanges, um, they would be potentially in a lot of trouble from a medical perspective at some point in yeah. the next 12 months. Exactly. Um, so that kind of leads us into the second part that we wanted to talk about, which is that the Republican tax bill has ended the individual mandate for insurance effective uh, January 1, 2019. Correct. Yes, I, I was just my mind went, wow, 2019. It just a lot of years passed since the millennium, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yes, the purpose of this slide when you review when you review the podcast right. summary is to make everyone feel old. That's the purpose of this slide. Yeah. <laughs> um, so January one of next year, the individual mandate, unless something massive happens, will no longer will no longer be effective. What does that mean? The CBO projects that 13 million people will lose insurance by 2017 as a 2027. result. Sorry, um, 20. What did I say? 2017. Well, that would have gone in a time yeah, machine we're not back, going wouldn't it? I told no, no one wants no. to go. Back. 2017 was already. No one wants to go back. <laughs> Um, and they're also projecting an increase in exchange premiums as a result. And that, again, is because that, that you have the relatively healthy people who will probably are going to be the ones more on the fence about opting out and taking advantage of no longer having to be mandated. Um, that the, the, the healthy pool kind of offsets the risk for insurance companies for those who really need insurance and are not going to take that risk. So therefore, rates are going to rise. That's the thinking. And I think there's, that's, that has long been commonly accepted, um, you know, just sort of a commonly accepted truism that that's what's going to happen. 
it's really interesting though, as you know, this is the kind of stuff that I think wide segments of the of the experts, the so-called experts out there have sort of been saying for the, the last 12 months, when you talk about ending the individual mandate, it will do all of these things. And then as soon as the individual mandate was actually eliminated, a a series of really much, much more thoughtful and less uh, black and white articles uh, came out saying what really is the effect of the individual mandate getting eliminated. And when you really start drilling down, it's much less clear how this is going to turn out. Um, one of the one of the assumptions among the people decrying this, and, and I've been one of those people saying this is a horrible thing to end the individual mandate. But one of the interesting things is that um, there is no data showing whether or not the penalties um, the threat of a financial penalty has really driven enrollment significantly over the last few years. Um, and there are legitimate arguments that, in fact, the most compelling reason that exchange enrollment has been as high as it's been isn't the threat of a penalty. It's the fact that a lot of the people who are signing up for the exchanges are getting subsidies to help pay for those premiums. And that's really what's driving people. Um I, I've seen I've seen an MIT professor who was one of the architects of the Affordable Care Act say that roughly a third of signups uh, on the exchanges have no have no sort of clear explanation, and he hypothesizes therefore that those are the people who are signing up because of the threat of penalties. I'm not convinced. I don't think anyone really knows, um, and so rather than rather than throw out hypotheses, Peggy, that are really just conjecture, I'm going to refrain from doing that and just say. No one really knows what's going to happen. But I, I do think, I, I do agree with two principles. If young invincibles, young healthy people uh, stop signing up because they, they say to themselves, I'm healthy and I don't need insurance, um, I do think that will necessarily lead to premium increases because the, the, the overall risk pool will be sicker. Um, it's not clear to me whether or not that will happen. I, I think there are a lot of young people who think that healthcare is a basic uh, right that everyone should have, and and they feel like it's part of part of being a good citizen to actually get insurance. So we'll see how that plays out. Um, the other thing that I think to keep an eye on is um, what I would describe as middle class to upper middle class people, people who might be self employed, um, who do not qualify for the subsidies. I think those are the people who are really going to get hurt by. Uh, by the individual mandate disappearing, because to the extent that premiums do increase, that's the population that has no safety net that's there financially to help them afford the insurance. And so people who actually may be doing much better uh, economically than than people who qualify for the subsidies, I think are the ones at greatest risk as a result of uh, of this individual mandate getting pulled. But, and again, we don't really know, and nobody really knows. This is all conjecture at this point. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see how kind of everything plays out in the next like 18 months, 18 to 24 months. Um, and we'll definitely keep an eye on it and keep everybody posted. And if things change, yep. we will be there to let you know. We will. Um, so there you go, Peggy. That was three different topics we covered in about 25 minutes.
there you go. See, we're we're getting this. It's only episode sixty two, so it it took us, you know, a good sixty to get under our belt. And yeah, it's actually episode sixty one. I know you're very excited about ramping up the numbers. That's all right. Sorry. It's quite all right. I just don't want people to listen to this and then say, Oh, where's the missing podcast? Oh. Right. No. Well, we were doing a lot of them before this. This is though, actually too, like so. episode a hundred and yeah. something, probably. Okay. We just never went back uh, probably, and renumbered yes. them. All. Yes. Seemed like a lot of work. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right. Anything else we want to say? All right. Well, I don't think so. I don't think so. Stay warm. I know you're going to Florida over the weekend. I am probably not going to move from in front of my wood stove because it is like painfully cold and everybody's off school again tomorrow. Um, So I'll withhold judgment and just say everybody's off again tomorrow. Same thing has happened in New York. So uh, my kids are enjoying two days off from school, the two who are still in. out in middle school and high school. And there was a lot of snow today, Peggy. My back is sore. I shoveled a lot. We didn't get any. We didn't get any, but they were still off. I think they were off because of the cold, but I'm not really sure. Yeah, I don't saying, I don't know why they were off. I just said that they came out and did their, you know, school's off dance. And Yeah, they're saying, yeah, they're saying tomorrow here it's going to be a high of around 10 and a low of – between negative five and five and wind chills in the negative 20s. So that sounds delightful. Yeah, that's why I'm not moving from yeah. in front of the woods. Everyone stay tomorrow. safe <laughs> if you're in the Northeast. Thanks. And enjoy I'm, Florida. I'm actually going to be in Southern Florida where the temperature when I land is supposed to be 61 degrees. That's how crazy this this is. And, and oh. by the way, I'm thrilled. 61 sounds wow. fantastic. Yeah, I'm I was going to say, that's, exactly. That's like a heat wave. Thanks for talking, Peggy. All right. Talk soon. We'll be back Bye. next week. Bye. Bye.